I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. I'm out here in the Norfolk countryside walking with my best dog friend, Rosie Buxton. She's on good form, aren't you, Rosie? I'm sniffing grass. Yes. It is a really nice day out here. It could be summer if it wasn't quite so cold. Having said that, it is a stark contrast to this time last week when it was icy. So I'm grateful to be out here in the second half of November 2022. In fact, today, as I record this, it is Joe Cornish's birthday. Birthday time. It's birthday time. It's time for your birthday today, Cornballs. He is 35 doesn't look a day over 15 and uh, I wish him a very happy birthday sorry I didn't get you a present but I expended all my present giving energy on the Christmas podcast which is just a few days away now this episode of the podcast today's episode is kind of a serious chat not very festive buckles you might be thinking well maybe even though I do think it's a good conversation But also you've got a bumper helping of Christmas waffle nonsense coming down the chimney on Christmas morning. So without further ado, let me tell you a bit about my guest for podcast number 199. The British author, broadcaster, former editor-at-large for The Guardian newspaper and current visiting professor at London's South Bank University, Gary Young. Young Facts. Gary was born in 1969 in Hertfordshire to Barbadian parents and grew up in Stevenage. Stevenage. When he was 17, he went to Kasala, Sudan, with Project Trust to teach English in a United Nations Eritrean refugee school. On his return, he attended Heriot Watt University in Edinburgh, where he studied French and Russian. In his final year at university, he was awarded a bursary from The Guardian to study journalism at City University and started working at The Guardian in 1993. In 1996, he was awarded the Lawrence Stern Fellowship, which sends a young British journalist to work at the Washington Post newspaper in the US. After several years of reporting from all over Europe, Africa, America and the Caribbean, Gary was appointed The Guardian's U.S. correspondent in 2003, writing first from New York, then Chicago, for the next 12 years. In 2015, he returned to London with his wife and two children, where he became The Guardian's editor-at-large, a position he held until 2020, when he accepted a post as Professor of Sociology at the University of Manchester. 
as well as writing for the New York Review of Books, Granta, GQ, The Financial Times and The New Statesman, and making several radio and TV documentaries on subjects ranging from gay marriage to Brexit, Gary is the author of five books. No Place Like Home, A Black Britain's Journey Through the Deep South, was published in 1999. Stranger in a Strange Land, Travels in the Disunited States, was published in 2006. Who Are We? And Should It Matter in the 21st Century? was originally published in 2011. The Speech, the story behind Martin Luther King's dream, was published in 2013. And Another Day in the Death of America, a chronicle of 10 short lives, was originally published in 2016. His sixth book is being published next year, 2023, and it is called Dispatches from the Diaspora. From Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter. It's a collection of articles that Gary has written about the African diaspora and issues of race and racism in the Caribbean, Zimbabwe, Sierra Leone, and across Europe, as well as Britain and the United States. My conversation with Gary was recorded face to face in London in mid November of this year, 2022, and we talked about Gary's formative political experiences as a 15-year-old caught between the wrath of revolutionary workers and his mum. We talked about why Paris was the most racist city Gary ever lived in and why, by contrast, he was embraced in Leningrad. And in the course of talking about Gary's excellent book about identity politics, Who Are We and Should It Matter in the 21st Century, I asked him about a book he mentions in there, which is called The American Directory of Certified Uncle Toms, which sets out to rate well-known black Americans according to the degree the authors think they've been co-opted by white society. In fact, we didn't end up talking about the book itself very much, but about the concept of being an Uncle Tom, how it started and how it still endures in various forms. But we began by talking about Gary's book Another Day in the Death of America, in which Gary writes about gun violence via the lives of 10 American children shot and killed on a randomly chosen date, Saturday the 23rd of November 2013. I really recommend that book, but there's also a link in the description to a great YouTube video, which, despite the uh, slightly clickbaity title, Gary Young Destroys America's Gun Culture, is really an excellent and well-illustrated, well-put-together argument for gun control put together by Double Down News and delivered with characteristic compassion and rationality by Gary. Back at the end to say goodbye, but right now with Gary Young. Here we go. My book came out probably about six weeks before Trump's election victory. Yeah. And um, it was just a very... In Britain, when you talked about it, when I talked about it, it would be like, well, 
most it's not a partisan issue in Britain, you know, guns. People generally have the same view. Yeah. You know, well, what, what, what would you want everybody carrying around one of those lethal weapons for? Whereas in America, and particularly on radio, because there is a kind of extra dynamic where they don't know I'm black, you know, but they would, uh, the gun people would come on and they would, um, they would say these things that were just kind of unsustainable, you know, and weird, you know. If you just took a few cities out of America, if you took out, you know, I'd say, which cities do you want to take out? What, you know, and it'd be like Chicago, Detroit, because in the gun world's mind, this is entirely racialized phenomenon. Right, so those are the cities that are unfairly skewing the numbers because gun violence is so out of control. Yeah, and if you took these cities out, and I'd say, well, if you take out, Chicago, where are you going to get your blues from? Where are you going to get your deep dish pizza from? Like, <laughs> if you take out Detroit, where are you going to get your cars from? Where are you going to get motor from? You can't just imagine a country without without certain cities because it's inconvenient for your argument. They are in America. And then, um, you know, if you compare us to Brazil, and I'll be like, well, when do you compare yourself to Brazil? You know, when, when does that happen? And And then the kind of nutty, you know... It's not guns that kill people, it's people that kill people, you know. I'd be like, yeah, okay. It's not toasters that make toast, it's people that make toast. You know, but toasters exist to make toast, don't they? Yeah. And guns exist to kill people, you know. Yeah. The same arguments keep sort of popping up again and again. Occasionally I get drawn into YouTube rabbit holes of watching gun control debates and then looking at the comments underneath. And... It's almost always the same sort of things. I was going to ask if it was okay to run a few of those by you. Oh, yeah, go ahead. All right. So, yeah, I'm going to play the part of the gun control opponent Mm. using a few of the arguments that I've read in comment sections and heard on podcasts and things Mm. like that. Advance apologies to any opponents of gun control listening because I'm not going to do a great job on your behalf, but I'll (laughs) do my best. So practical question about reducing the number of guns if you had tougher gun control laws. Say they decide to get rid of the guns. How are they going to manage to take hundreds of millions of guns already circulating around America back? Surely the criminals are not going to hand their guns in. And that's a good question. That is one of the better questions about how do you practically do this? And for that, the only suggestion I have is to look at places where it's been done. So in Australia, after the shootings in Tasmania, they did a massive buyback and um, a amnesty and they pulled the guns back in. Now, if we were to apply that logic to other areas of American society, then I would say, what the hell are you doing building a wall on your border? Do you honestly think that's going to stop migrants coming into your country? Well, no, but you're going to build a wall because you think that, you know, well, we have to do something. We have to protect our borders and blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's a very good idea. I don't think that's the way to do it. But if your response to an urgent social need is it's too hard and the bad people will carry on being bad, well, then that will lead to anarchy. You have the most militarized country in the world. So I reckon you could do it if that's what you wanted to do. And given the rates of incarceration, the people that make these arguments, they didn't complain, you know, when people were saying, 
you're going to ban marijuana. How on earth do you think you're going to ban marijuana? That's not really going to work, is it? And yet, you know, they locked up how many hundreds of thousands of millions of people. So this is not an argument that is applied elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And this particular thing, guns, more than marijuana, more than the war, more than immigration, there is a proven connection between this and a massive death rate, which is unlike anything else anywhere in the Western world. So there's an urgency. And what is that death rate at the moment? Is Brazil number one in, in shooting deaths in the world? or You know what? I honestly don't know where is number one. I know that in the OECD countries, in the Western countries, America is number one Yeah, by quite a long way. Uh, when I did my book, Seven Kids Every Day. So the book is about all the kids that are shot dead in one day. Yeah. When I did the book, except kids and teens, so 0 to 19. When I did the book, it was seven was the average. Now I think it's about 12. Really? It's gone up that much? Yeah. Every day. Yeah. And it's a reliable statistic. So when I did my book, I picked a random day. And so long as you pick a Friday, Saturday, because more kids die at the weekend, you know they're going to die. You don't know where. Mm. You don't know who, but you know that somebody's number's going to come up. And if it's in the summer, then it's even worse. Here's another gun control opponent question. Mass shooting deaths involve criminals. Roughly 80 to 85% of shooting deaths every year involve criminals shooting each other or people defending themselves from criminals? Mm, Is that an actual question? I suppose people are sort of implying there that, well, this there's a lot of shootings, but it's mainly criminals who are being taken out of the equation, so... Right. I mean, first of all, it's not true. The statistic isn't true. More than half... Most people who, who are shot by guns kill themselves. So that's the first thing. Accidentally or by suicide? Well, they're counted as suicides. Okay. So, yeah, more than half are suicides. Yeah. Which really begs the question, if you made it harder for someone to commit suicide successfully, would they necessarily... When you put a gun to your head, that's not a cry for help. You know, once you pull the trigger, you you know, it will get the job done. So there's not much chance for kind of further reflection there. In other places where you don't have that access to lethal weaponry, many people who try to commit suicide can then, with decent mental health support, kind of go on to lead kind of uh, better lives and to live. Uh, So that's the first thing. Secondly, criminals are people too. Like, the fact that they're criminals or that they have a criminal record, which is different to... I mean, to reduce someone to one act, particularly in a country where it's very difficult to get legal support, where you people plea bargain out, even if, you know, they didn't necessarily do things. It's not like the American legal system and the American criminal justice system is one that we want to rely on for whether people deserve to live or die, mm-hmm. right? The definition of what is a criminal in America is racialized and is understood in certain socioeconomic terms. And bullets don't necessarily simply seek... Like, once once a bullet goes out, it can go anywhere. So, 
Well, you talk in the book about the whole idea of, you know, the thing that people say when there is a school shooting. Mm. People are particularly and rightly upset by the idea of children and innocent children. The word mm. innocent is used. And you say that it, it sort of throws up the idea that some people are more deserving of being shot than others. Yeah, and, and that, yeah. So, uh, and, and I'd forgotten that this started with the kind of mass shootings, which mm. m most people don't die through mass shootings. You know, that's why the book deals with a random day. And in any kind of given random day, most of the shootings aren't mass shootings. They're the spectacle that attracts the media attention. Mm -hmm. But, um, yes, this notion of the worthy victim and the unworthy victim, it goes really deep. Every single African-American parent that I spoke to thought that their kid might get shot. One of them said, well, I didn't think it'd be him. I thought it'd be his brother. But, you know, the guy I knew it could just said, you're not doing your job as an African-American parent if you think your kid can't get shot. But then the other thing is that they all felt the need to talk about why their kid shouldn't have been shot. They felt the need to defend their dead child's honour. He wasn't in a gang. He didn't hang out of the corner. He was always in by 10. He was... It's awful. Like, your kid shouldn't be shot. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. And, of course, your kid shouldn't be in a gang. <laughs> like, but, like, there are a certain number of mistakes that you are kind of expected to make as a young person. Sure. But some young people don't have that margin of error. And just by having a friend who, you know, is on the wrong side of town or just literally living in a place is enough to leave you dead. Mm -hmm. um, to what degree do you... Like, where do you stand on the whole idea of the way that guns are portrayed in entertainment, films, TV, video games, etc.? Because that's obviously a whole conversation that is easily captured by mm. uh, conservative ways of thinking about the world. I think it's a problem. I don't think it's the problem mm. because I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly, but my guess is the penetration of PS4s and, you know, whatever the other consoles are that are really big are as great probably in Britain and in, you know, elsewhere in the Western world as they are in America. And yet we don't have the gun violence that they do. Mm. And it is a problem, obviously, because it glamorises. It sort of normalises it. That's what yeah. I always think. It's like the thing I wang on about is... Um, <laughs> you wang on. Adam. Oh, I'm a massive wanger. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I think evidently people are OK with the idea that things they see portrayed in the media have an effect, right? Mm. People, most people have come to agree that that's a thing. Whereas I think most people used to say immediately when there were conversations about violence in movies or whatever, they were like, you know, sane people are able to separate that kind of thing mm. from real life. Whereas that doesn't seem to be the case when you're talking about 
attitudes to women or minorities、mm. or smoking or any of these things that now people are careful to portray in a responsible way、mm. because they appreciate that it does have an effect in the real world. Really,、yeah. people's attitudes are important to the extent that now, before the Beatles get back, Doc, there's warnings about you know you're going to see smoking Beatles <laughs> in this thing and watch out. So evidently. Things do have an effect, but that doesn't seem to apply to the way that guns are por portrayed, or the way that it's taken as read that it's, you know, you've got a guy with a gun who's going to sort things out.、Mm. It's exciting. I appreciate that that you know people can pass the difference between fantasy and a story and and reality, but it but these things do have a cumulative effect on people's、oh, yeah. attitudes. Yeah, I, I mean. They do. I have no doubt that if guns were as freely available as they were, as they are in America and Britain, Britain, you know, would have、yeah. a serious problem on its hands, and that that would be part of it. But what one can't do is establish a causal link, or even a contextual link between that and gun violence, unless you take into account the accessibility of the gun. Yeah, to start with. So we had not long been back. Me, my wife, and I've got two kids. My son would have been eight at the time, and my daughter was two. We were at a friend's house in Derbyshire, rural Derbyshire. My wife is American, and I don't know that I would have had this policy were it not for her. But like, no guns, no guns as toys. I think I would have been slacker. Although I think I might have got there after a while from living in America, but America is the only place where I had kids, and she was like, "No, guns aren't toys."、Uh, so, if my son was given a present, I don't know, some Lego thing and had guns in it, it'd be like, "Okay, we'll just take the guns off." But of course, when he goes somewhere else, different parents, different rules, and and of course, when you try and enforce these rules. As soon as he goes somewhere else, and everyone goes, "Awesome guns! I can't play with these at home." So we're in Derbyshire. We've just returned from America、uh, after twelve years. So I lived in America for twelve years as the Guardian's U.S. correspondent.、Uh, we've come back to Britain to live, and we are visiting some friends in Derbyshire. And these friends, their kid has guns to play with, and at a certain point. He and my son go running out of the house with guns, and me and my wife look at each other. I mean, there was a case of a boy, Tamar Rice, in、uh, Cleveland, I think, who was playing with a gun, with a toy gun, with a toy gun. Someone calls the cops, said, "Look, there's a kid. I think it's a toy gun, but he's kind of freaking people out in the park." Cops just rolled up and shot him like a oh my goodness. When was that? Um, this would have been it was before I left, so probably two thousand fifteen, two thousand fourteen. Just shot him. Shot him dead. Oh yeah, and and then people were like, well, "What kind of parent lets their kids play with a toy gun?" Like, and it's like, no, you know,、yeah. <laughs> no. Our kids just run out with the toy gun. And we look at each other, like sort of like who can get to him fastest. And I said, "It's all right, actually. It's all right. Nobody here has a gun,、yeah. and nobody here thinks it's a real gun. 
So we're just going to have the conversation with him when he comes back. Because we will have the conversation with him. We did. But that's when you realise that you've been carrying this thing around with you. Because the kid's parents, the other, my son's friend, Mm -hmm. they didn't think, oh, my God. And so, you know, I just remember not after thinking, yeah, like I've... I've been internalizing this anxiety, mm-hmm. and I di- which I didn't. I mean, it was eight. I wasn't thinking, you know, I hope he doesn't get shot on the way to school or at school because he's eight. So you know, when that's you say, <laughs> I worry about that when he's fifteen. You know, but actually, you are carrying around with you the whole time. And I just thought, Jesus, I've got a detox, man. That's awful. Yeah. How was the process of talking to the people involved with the deaths of their children in the course of writing the book? It was um, it was delicate. Yeah, you know, um, I had to be careful how I approached them. I kept thinking, if my kid had been shot dead, would I want to talk to someone? You know, I don't know, and so um, I had a process where I would arrive. I'd try and find an address, and I would send a letter. And the letter would say, I'm sorry for your loss. I read about it, and um, I want to talk to you about your son. Uh, I know how he died, but I'd like to know how he lived. Who was he? What did he like to do? What did you love about him? What irritated you about him? And I know I can't bring him back to life, but, you know, I'm I'm a writer, and I want to honour his life on the page, and that this is the project I'm doing, um, would you talk to me? And if they agreed to speak to me, I would speak to them. Usually it didn't last more than about 45 minutes or an hour. Mm-hmm. I'd talk to them about their child and, you know, the night it happened, and, but also kind of what they were like, and quite often they had little boxes of things that they'd saved. And mm, yeah, that was chat. very heartbreaking the memory boxes yeah very kind of and and that would usually be for about an hour after which you could tell they were kind of tapped out and and then i would say that i depending on how this went for you i'd like to come back and when i come back i'd love it if you could introduce me to kind of other people who knew them so yeah, that was the process. It's quite slow, mm-hmm. but it's necessarily slow. How was your mental health in the whole process of putting it together? It must have been... It's very sad to read. It must have been very difficult to have those conversations and meet those people. You know... Um, at the risk of sounding pathological... Uh-huh. <laughs> this is already a dangerous way to start a sentence, right? <laughs> You're a journalist, so you have to have some sort of... It's a bit like being a doctor, I guess. You can't invest in every, in the reality, the emotional reality of every single situation, otherwise it's not practical. Well, there is that, but there was also an investment that I had quite early on in these stories that meant that because so few, so few being one or two really made the papers beyond, oh, this kid died. That was kind of it. And actually, kind of, it might be, 
these kids were got shot and it knocked out the electricity. We don't know how long the electricity is going to be on. Most of the story is about the electricity, not about the kids being shot. So not extensively reported. And I, I was kind of like, I was on a mission mm. to tell these stories. And in a sense, the mission sort of was my emotional investment. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So when I reached someone who could tell me something, I would get really excited. And when I found, of course, I knew the whole time that this child had died. And my defense would be that I wouldn't have been able to actually if I was being pathological and just driven by the story and so on, the conversations wouldn't have drawn out the things that they did. And I was on a mission to tell these stories, that these children's stories. And the last one that I found, Kinfor, was a boy in Houston, Edwin, who I was told by one of his teachers, well, he's undocumented, so they don't want to be found. Turned out Edwin was not, his mum was. Edwin wasn't because he was born in America. But I was like, the idea that this kid might be undocumented in life and not documented in my book in death was kind of more than I could bear. I really did go the extra mile. I actually flew to Houston and just kept asking around, you know. And then I did fight, and his mum was so pleased to see me, as it turned out. Mm -hmm. And so I think that mitigated the emotional toll. It could just be I'm a defective person. That is also true. My, my wife has some theories about that. But listening to the 911 calls, like in America, you can have access to the, here would be the 999 calls. That was very emotional. And actually the toughest one was a boy called Samuel Brightman in Dallas. And he, in the 911 call, the operator is saying to his mum, is he conscious? And she says, I think so. Samuel, are you, are you conscious? And you hear him go, yeah, yeah. And that really, I was like, oh my God, he's alive. I become so accustomed to the children being dead. This was this one just very kind of, it was like, oh, my God, he's he's alive right now. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm listening to him being alive. And then his mum telling the story, I said to his mum, when did you find out that he was dead? And she said, well, I was following the ambulance, and at a certain point they turned off the light. And you just think, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. Geez. So... It's not that there weren't moments. Sure. Um, but like I said, I was... It be, it be, I remember saying to my wife, I don't care if nobody reads this. I just feel now like I have to do it. And that was quite early on. What's the way forward? Do you have any sense of how things will go in order for the situation to improve? What, what needs to be done in the short term for the situation to improve in practical terms? I feel like... Because it feels totally impossible. Like the, the, You just sort of think, nothing really seems to make a difference. No, the appalling yeah. magnitude yeah, of a school yeah. shooting and Valde and... So I feel that something's already changed. 
in 2012, I was covering the presidential election, and I was I went down to Florida to see Obama speak in Naples, Florida, and the night before, a kid whose name I've forgotten went into a cinema in Aurora, Colorado, when Batman Returns was on, oh, yeah, shot man. it up, and Obama comes to the podium. And that the news of that had seeped out that morning, and Obama must have arrived late that night. And so, he, you know, he comes to the platform and he does what every president has done, even uh, Clinton with Columbine. Who knows what's in men's hearts? You know, who can understand this evil? We will all hug our children a bit closer tonight. Today is not a day for politics. I'm thinking, I disagree. I think today would be a very good day for politics. Like, you know, are you ever going to talk about this? And then Sandy Hook happens. He's no longer running for president. He's won. And then he does intervene. And he says, we we have to have this conversation. The conversation that he's avoided for the past four years. Mm -hmm. We have to have this conversation. And this is unacceptable. No other country has this. And it begins a process of of intervention. And there is a, I think it's Lyndon Crosby, who's a Tory kind of, um, the Tory kind of guru, um, consultant, has this phrase, you can't fatten a pig on market day. Which I think is a pretty good phrase. Like, and this was, so you've, you've avoided this conversation for how long? And then you start this conversation. So we shouldn't be surprised if the first time after Sandy Hook, when they try and get gun control legislation, even though Sandy Hook has all the necessary components, is Connecticut. They are small kids. They are white kids. The shooter is just mentally ill. He's not been released on some furlough program or... So it's all there, and you still don't get any legislation. And people say, understandably, well, if it didn't happen under Sandy Hill, when's it going to happen? But I'm thinking, well, if you hadn't had the conversation for 30 years, why do you think it would happen immediately now? And in the same way that I think, that's what I thought about Brexit, you've avoided conversations about immigration pretty much since 1962. Or you've succumbed to the worst conversations about immigration since now, because you thought there was nothing in it. Well, then the Brexit conversation happens and people are talking about immigration and suddenly you want to have this conversation? Well, that's not going to work. And there has been... That, that's 10 years ago, um, Sandy Hook. Almost mm. exactly, it was in December, I think. Mm. Uh, Democrats are kind of now... In the, in the polity, they are more hardcore about kind of gun control. They are more strident... So it's not like nothing has happened. But there is one other thing that's a problem, which is that the people who want guns want them more than the people who don't want guns don't want them. Uh The polls show they're more likely to write letters to their congresspeople, they're more likely to sign a petition, they're more likely to raise money, they're more likely to vote on it. Whereas there isn't really a national united gun control movement and the way that the gun control movement the kind of rhetoric it 
tends to use is one of, you know, protecting our communities from predators who would harm us. Which is kind of not really going to fly in the African-American community where people are understood to be predators, you know. And so um, the biggest hope I had was the kids after the shooting in Florida. Yeah. They had that big demonstration. They were completely uncompromising. They were they were strident, kind of gobby, determined, super articulate, quite sophisticated kids. And um, that was the most hopeful thing that I had seen. And, of course, if you've got 12 kids getting shot dead every day, then clearly it's just every day it's moving too slow. similar ages are we yeah i think so i'm 53 yeah so you're january 69 aren't you yeah i'm june ah so we grew up in the uk in the 80s yeah but i have a feeling we had quite different childhoods really where did you grow up well i grew up in london and south wales right it sounds like you had different childhoods if you grew up in london and south wales yeah that's true there was uh it was quite stark the contrast between city life and then suddenly being in the middle of nowhere where my dad wanted to be but then he'd bugger off he was a writer as well but it was nice anyway meanwhile you are growing up in stevenage and by the time you were 15 so this stuff i gleaned from who are we how identity politics took over the world Mm -hmm. which begins with you talking about your childhood yeah I love that section. I love the book. It's great, man. It's like, I think it's the best writing on identity politics that I've read. Oh, thank you. Because there's a lot of it, right? Yeah. There's a lot of people weighing in because it's a very emotive topic. Mm. And it's transformed so many things in the last few years. I wanted to talk to you about some of that stuff right. in the book. But before then, just about your growing up and stuff, which is such a fascinating contrast to my own childhood. By 15, your Politically active, joining the yeah, yeah. socialist workers. Not the socialist workers, no, because socialist workers are actually kind of quite sane, certainly relative to the... I joined the Workers' Revolutionary Party. Okay. They were bonkers. In what ways? Well, they. you have to imagine that their, their thing is that kind of... Um, the revolution is going to happen any moment. We're in a revolutionary situation. It's going to happen any moment. Which, during the minor strike... Even in my 15-year-old sort of little brain, was still kind of like, well, yeah, the state is kind of being involved, and it kind of it seemed they were holding out for a general strike. They were holding out for a general, and it kind of, you know, it's it didn't seem completely ludicrous. Mm. Um, But then there would be things like you go to this meeting that ends up lasting five hours, and you're completely bored, and it's in Clapham, and you live in Stevenage. It's already a bit dodgy, and you're, you know, you're already going to be much later. And so you want to go and just call your mum and say, I'm going to be late. And they say, hey, you can't, no, you can't leave. 
And I said, I, I need to call my mum. No, no, no. All of these phones around here, they're all bugged. The state's bugged them all. I'm like, I don't care if the state knows that I'm calling my mum to tell her I'm going to be late. I don't. That's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And the more I think about this now, the more I think what an irresponsible bunch of gits they were. I was doing an A-level. I did French at night school. So I was doing this A-level two years early. And I applied... Because I was a, I was very, I took myself very seriously, and you know, I applied for time off party work, so that I could revise for my A level, and they said no. Now, if you imagine that the revolution is going to happen tomorrow, then fine. Like it's 1917, it's the Winter Palace, and you're like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll be alone, but I got, you know, I've got my A level tomorrow. <laughs> like, no, you don't, because there'll be no A levels. Been, but it's not 1917, and the miners already gone back to work, and I got an A level to do, and they're like, no. So at that stage, I can either like keep going to these meetings and have my mum lose her shit, or I can like fall out with them. Like my mum's much more scary than they are. <laughs> so I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'm, I've got to do this. And then they start, you know, saying, oh, maybe you're a police informer. Maybe. Oh, maybe no way. Yes, yeah, so they start getting really weird. And then and, they sent people round after you left. Yeah, and it, each kind of, I was like, fuck you. Yeah. Then. But, you know, and in, a, in one year, I got all the experience that I needed not to do that again. Not to, to know that politics is not about acting out, that just saying the most radical thing is different from being radical. That kind of, because they would be like, we want a general strike. They only want a 24 hour strike. You know, what's wrong with them? And they want, you know, and it was these kind of maximalist positions and all of that. So it was a very valuable, if intense, experience that like having it at 16 and I managed to get out of it right and I've remained politically active uh, on the left so it didn't scar me for life yeah you didn't go the other way yeah so um yeah but it was proper weird how did you end up in Paris again I studied French and Russian that was the degree that I did in uh, a university I studied to be a translator and you were in Edinburgh studying that. yeah a uh, four-year course, and you do five, six months in Paris and five, six months in what was then Leningrad. And how did you come to be living in the fancy part of Paris? Whereabouts was it that I you ended up? I was on the fifth arrondissement, just by the Pantheon. Yeah. So just up from the Jardin de Luxembourg. Because looking for flats, people would say, vous êtes de quelle origine, monsieur? You know, basically, what colour are you? Or they didn't, and if you said, oh, um, Anglientier, uh, I would say. This is Caribbean Brit. Oh, yeah, no. See, we did have a flat, but we don't, you know, and the flat would disappear. Or they didn't ask you, and you travel halfway across the country in your one presentable piece of clothing, and then they would see you, and they'd be like, oh, oh no, no. So I put a little note in the English church thinking, England. And I was thinking England, although to me England and Britain were synonymous, which I know they're not, but they know what black and British can mean. And I don't know what's going on. I mean, all I know that's going on here is racism. So black British student seeking accommodation, one and a half years teaching English experience. And I give the number of my youth hostel. This very, well, this old Etonian, if he's out there, I would love to see him again, Charles Tatum. He said he saw it and that God spoke to him and he set about, unbeknown to me, 
finding me a place. And the place was with a French... I feel that she was like the K80 of her moment, but in French radio. So her name was Annie Dobonton, and she worked for France Inter, which is like, kind of like the French World Service, sort of. But her area of expertise was Eastern Europe, and this was 1990, 1991. So Eastern Europe was the ball game. Yeah. And she, you know, and I was teaching her English, and she lived, I had a, I had a room in her flat, and I would teach her like two and a half hours a day. And I would say to her, you know, so what did you do today? Or today I interviewed uh, Mr. Gorbachev. We talked about the possibilities for Perestroika after the war. You know, I was like, Jesus, wow. man, I want a piece of that. And that's how I got really into the idea of becoming a journalist. Right. The flip side of that was I was in a fancy part of town with plaits and tracksuit trousers and a big loopy earring. And I didn't make sense to any CRS. They're the kind of, they were like the equivalent of what was the SPG in Britain, like the kind of more militarized police, not just regular police, just like gits. And they would stop me. Usually kind of particularly in the morning like, certain times of day, there are a lot of tourists around there and so on. But, like, in the morning when I'd be out for my baguette and my kind of, you know, paper, or in the evening when I'd be coming home, and they'd be like, yeah, what are you doing here? I'd be like, well, I'm staying around the corner. What are you doing staying around the corner? Well, that's where I stay. So I would get stopped and searched, like, three or four times a week. I I got beaten up by the cops in the metro. How, how did that happen? I mean, you know, I was sitting on a train with a couple of uh, fellow students. These cops came on. They dragged me out of the train, slammed me against the wall, start, like, you know... Um, frisking you. Frisking me. Um, and I'm like, what have I... And any time I did anything, like... Obviously, I wasn't trying to fight him, but I'm like... You know, I haven't done anything. I don't know where I'd be like, Sh- you know, sharp, you know, whack. And then it was like, right, you can go. Hmm. Have you been back to Paris recently? Actually, I was back there um, last week. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm a 53 year old, considerably portly gentleman without plaits or a very loopy earring who doesn't go out at 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, if I did. If I was somewhere and I needed to get somewhere that was a distance, I'd probably take a cab. So, you know... It's a different city it's a, for you. Yeah, it's a um, different rules, different rules apply. But it was, um, it was the most intense racial experience I've ever had. And, um, you know, I've had some racial experiences. <laughs> yeah. And then you talk in the book as well about the contrast between that and then going somewhere superficially much more hardcore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I go to Leningrad then to do the second bit. And I'm staying with a Jewish mum and her son, who's about nine. And so I'm, you know, I'm in St. Petersburg in this moment. And this moment is very weird because it's clear that the Soviet Union won't be for long. And there is a veneration of the West, and I get caught up in this veneration. There is also a kind of animus uh, 
towards Africans, Asians, anyone looks like they've been sucking on the teat of the Soviet Union because they are understood to be part of this past folly of solidarity and so on. Somehow, which is about cultural presentation, people look at me and they see that I am Western. They think I'm American, they don't think I'm British, but they don't think I'm African. And that distinction means that instead of being hostile, they become craven. They think I've got money. It's the only time in my life anybody looked at me and thought, I bet he's rich. Nobody's ever done that before. <laughs> so um, I had to vouch. In Paris, if I went out with, I didn't really know any other students, but if I went out with white people to like a nightclub, they would have to vouch for me. They're very clear color bars in Paris and they're kind of not particularly subtle about it. In Leningrad, it's almost the opposite. I would have to vouch for the white people because they could have been Russian, but I couldn't have been Russian. So I'd be like, you know, if we went into a hotel or a Voluta bar or a Voluta, I'd be like, yeah, they're with me. It's all right. <laughs> so so you take that whole year together, it was a very weird year. Yeah. It's a great section of the, of the book towards the beginning. Um, political correctness, uh, Gary. Mm. Oh, dear, oh, dear. It's gone mad, isn't it? Um, well, they call it woke now, don't they? They don't call it political. You don't hear so much about political. The terminology, so. are you good at just adapting to new terminology and rolling with it? Or do you ever find yourself just thinking, oh, fuck it, Al. I've, I'm losing track. Yeah, well, no, I do lose track. And I, what I generally find is that it's usually the same track. Yeah. Right. Woke is a version of political correctness. That term, which was once adopted by people who wanted to do good things and then it's taken by people who want to dismiss good things and turned into an insult in some way and they are both kind of you know so there used to be a talk about like we don't want politically correct policing and that meant we don't care if you stop and search all black people. Like We don't want you to think about racism while you're policing. And now they would call it woke policing, you know. And, you know, it, it, I remember doing a, an exercise at The Guardian of looking at all the things that politically correct or political correctness have been used for in the last month. And it was like British Airways tail fins, electric cars, you know, certain kinds of shortbread, you know, and it's like, so, it, I mean, it loses its value. And what they're trying to do, I think, is say, it's actually people very upset because they're losing a certain kind of battle, actually, mm -hmm. I think. And the battle is about sensitivity. We should be less sensitive. That is their argument. Yeah, or they just they just feel bent out of shape by being told off or being made to feel irrelevant? Being the, the thing about being bent out of shape for being told off, actually, I kind of understand that. I do. I think that kind of um, people can get hung up on the word rather than the spirit. And it's actually very possible to have the best spoken, most articulate racists in the world where you just know not to say certain things but you still do them and so the thing about kind of um i think there are ways to have this conversation that sometimes that are better than others 
and actually lots of people just want to carry on saying it, whatever it is, right, or they, doing yeah. it. And then I think you have the right to do that. You you know, you don't have the right to do everything. But if you want to say racist stuff, you can. I can't stop you. Your problem is when I say that's racist. And actually, it's the same right. You've got the right to be offensive, and I've got the right to be offended. But you think I I shouldn't have the right to be offended. Mm -hmm. You think I don't have the right to call you on it. And so you're not free from the consequences of your speech. And that's kind of what people want. They want to be able to say things and for there to be no comeback. Yeah. And that's not plausible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you see these things come around, and I I always say, you know, someone uses woke or cancel culture or culture. I say, so I don't understand that term. What what do you mean? What are you, it's like politically correct police. It's like, what, just, can you just tell me what, that sounds like a slogan. What is it in the policing that you don't want to happen? And then we can talk about that. Because political correctness or what is becoming to mean whatever you want it to mean so long as you don't like it. Yeah, yeah. A sentence that stood out to me in the book was, everyone has the right to call themselves whatever they want. We should respect that. We should honour self-definition, not to humour the subject, but because it's infinitely preferable to allowing anyone to be defined by others. So I thought that was a good core Mm statement about like what's at stake here yeah and self-identification has been one of the flashpoints for a lot of so-called woke and Mm. you know these conversations about identity politics over the last few years and i've seen more than one comedian kind of characterize it as like oh it's a bit bonkers all this is oh i'm going to identify as a kettle and i wish to be treated accordingly yeah um yeah, and I kind of, you know, there's always that thing, isn't there, where people say, well, what if people want to marry a dog? Mm. You know, when you when you expand the notion of marriage to include gay people. And I think, why don't we worry about it when somebody comes up and wants to marry a dog? Yeah. Nobody wants to marry a dog. So well, that's not a thing, is it? Depends or, what kind of dogs you know. <laughs> is there something you want to tell me, I Adam? Mean... <laughs> or, um... I don't care if someone's black, white, or yellow with green spots. And I think there are no people who are yellow with green spots. <laughs> so why don't we just deal with the problems that we have rather than you making up problems? Yeah. Like, you go ahead, like, marry a kettle. The worry seems to be, oh, if you go for this idea of self-identification and you indulge that, then people will take the piss. You know, when people are talking about race and people are talking about gender particularly. Mm. And they think, well... People are going to self-identify in bad faith in order to gain some sort of advantage. Mm. That seems to be the worry. Yeah, and and I'll be honest with you, when I wrote when I wrote the book, issues around trans and gender weren't as explosive and combustible as they are now. Mm. So even the term self-identification, which now at the moment people immediately move to kind of gender or kind of quite quickly move to gender and trans, it wasn't it wasn't the issue then that it was now. And I wasn't even thinking about uh, about that. I still sit with that notion, which is because then the next thing I say is, and whatever you call yourself has to make sense. 
for it to be a social identity. Mm. If it's just you, I can call myself anything I want. But if it's to be a social identity, then the social nature of it means that other people have to recognise it for what it is. But there is this. There was a there was a thing in um, one of the chapters which was about gatekeepers, and I used this example of mm. uh, Israel and trying to define who is Jewish and not, and how the definition keeps changing. And the guy. I speak to in Israel, whose job is to kind of help people establish their Jewish identity to kind of beyond reasonable doubt, which is no small thing in Israel to be considered Jewish or not. And he said, the thing is, for years, you didn't have people banging on the door saying, I would like to be Jewish, like you were Jewish or you weren't. And it wasn't the kind of identity that people thought, well, there's real advantage to being considered Jewish. Whereas now, partly because of the benefits that you might get if you're uh, if you're a citizen of Israel, for example, but maybe other things I don't know. Like there are there are benefits to being defined as Jewish, and so then that has to be kind of policed in a different way. I mean, that was what was kind of interesting about the Dolazar case in you, America, yeah. which also hadn't happened when I'd written the book, but like. Passing is a, is a kind of banal part of American racial life, that there were people who would uh, pass as being another race. But they all passed one way. You pass from being black to white. That's what passing meant, that light-skinned black people could, if they cut themselves off from their family, live lives as white people. The idea of people passing the other way just hadn't really occurred. It's like, well, what do you do that for? What are the, you know, what's the benefit of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You talk in the Gatekeepers chapter about the American Directory of Certified Uncle Toms. Oh, yeah. A book that was written, the, the full title is Being a Review of History, Antics and Attitudes of Handkerchief Heads, Aunt Jemima's Head Negroes in Charge and House Negroes Against the Freedom Aims of the Black Race. And it's by Richard Lawrence and James Lowe. It was published in 2002. And um, so what's the deal with this book? Is it like a spoof? I haven't read this book. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's, it's not easy to come by. I happened to be interviewing... I was in L.A. interviewing um, uh, Minister Farrakhan mm-hmm. for the BBC. And we went to interview some sort of offshoots of the Nation of Islam... I was also at the time writing a piece for The Guardian in defense of Uncle Tom, who I finally read the book and was like, you know, Uncle Tom is actually a pretty decent guy. And this is Harriet Beecher Stowe's book. Yeah. From 18, like the mid It was mid-1800s. from the Civil War, yeah. Right. It was kind of just before the Civil War. Credited um, with being kind of an important factor in... Very important, yeah. It was fighting. Like, Lenin's favorite book as a child, yeah. you know, it was kind of, it was a, yeah, and in, in kind of um, challenging the notion of, uh, well, challenging slavery, you know, a, a very delicate point. And in a range of ways, the, the book is deeply problematic. But Uncle Tom is this... Um, she was a white woman. The, she the was, a, yeah. Harriet Beecher Stowe is a white woman, and and kind of, you know, she likes her mulattoes. Tragic. She kind of, there's really only a few options. You either run, or you die, or you submit. Do you know what I mean? The idea of kind of, you know, 
self-organisation, overthrowing slavery, any of that kind of stuff doesn't come into it. So it's, it's not a particularly militant book. But Tom is this guy who, when he's told, I will promote you if you whip her, he says, no, I can't do that. I'd rather die. And he does die. And he, when the slaves say to him, two of the slaves say, we're running, come with us. He says, no, no, I'm not going to run with you. That, that doesn't seem right to me, which is like bonkers, I think. Although it depends on whether you get caught or not as to how bonkers it is. But then when he's asked, where did they go? He knows and he says, I'm not going to tell you. And that's why he dies. He gets whipped to death because he refuses to tell this brutal overseer where the slaves have gone. And um, uh, reading this book, I was like, there's that quote from Karl Marx, that religion is the opium of the people, which is the only bit people know. But the next bit is, but it's the sigh of the oppressed in a heartless world. And that for Tom and his religion, and his, it's like um, he has this kind of core sense of decency which is he's never going to be a revolutionary he's never going to be a militant but he would also give his life for a cause or for a principle so i wrote this essay in defense of uncle tom saying we we actually have to rescue the character from the but it was for the 200th anniversary of the would it be the 200 150th anniversary of the book so the book must have come out sometime around like uh uh, 1850, 1851, something yeah, like that. Yeah, 1853. Yeah. There you go, close enough. Um, um, that you have to protect Tom from Harriet Beecher Stowe, but also this phrase, you're an Uncle Tom, which is a de-blacking. Yeah, it, kind of, it basically means someone who is just trying to... Ingratiate, ingratiate themselves, themselves with the white world. Right. And most cultures have a term like that. The Irish call them West Brits. You know, people who want to get in with the Brits. And so people who assign to an identity a set of values, and if you don't believe in those values, then you're cast out of the tribe. You're not good enough. And this runs in a range of ways, you know. A black man who can't dance. Uh, do you know what I mean? An Irishman who doesn't know this song. And it's a deeply reactionary, it's, it's the first step to fundamentalism, actually. I am and therefore I do. You know, because you are this, you must think this. Mm -hmm. Anybody who doesn't think this... Is a traitor. Somehow. Is a traitor. And we see it play out, actually, in a range of ways with the, you know, quasi uh, Quateng or James Cleverly or these kind of black Tories and people say, well, how can you be a black Tory? You know, how is that possible? It's like, well, I don't agree with them politically, but the idea that free market economics is the preserve of white people is a bit bonkers. And the idea, you know, when the people are like, but they're doing so much damage to black people. And it's like, did you hear about Rwanda? Like, they were all black. Like, this is, you know, we have to have a much more sophisticated understanding of how the world works than just thinking that because someone looks like you that they're going to act in your interest. If that was true, then Margaret Thatcher wouldn't have done over the miners who were overwhelmingly white. It doesn't work like that. And so I think it's deeply reactionary whenever it comes from, even if it's targeted at people who I disagree with. I feel like we disagree with them for what they do, not who they are. 
And, um, um, you know, when people say, you know, how could someone who's been through X then do Y? And it's like sometimes people do that because they've been through X, because they've been kind of deeply traumatized. But let's concentrate on Y. Let's concentrate on what they do rather than who they are. And I, I hold that principle very firmly. You know, and so the book, Who Are We?, um, how identity to- politics took over the world. The kind of core principle of that book is that identity is an indispensable place to start and a terrible place to finish in anything, in politics, in, you know. We start with a story. We start with a constellation of influences. But then it's up to us to take them somewhere as free human beings and to apply them to the world as we see it and to do what we think is right. And the idea that everybody's going to do the same thing because they look the same or worship the same deity or it's not just absurd, it's wrong. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Rosie, hey, how you doing, dog legs? <laughs> dog legs. I didn't mean to call you dog legs there. Hope you don't mind. I don't mind. I have dog legs. Yeah. Oh, you are so beautiful to me. See, this is good, hard-hitting dog chat from a middle-aged man. You don't get that on The Rest is Politics. Anyway, welcome back, podcats. That was Gary Young talking to me there. You'll find a link in the description to Gary's website, which includes articles that Gary has written descriptions of his books and reviews there's Gary's Twitter feed there all sorts of other bits and pieces it's a good nicely put together website don't forget his book Dispatches from the Diaspora from Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter a collection of articles about the African diaspora and issues of race and racism is out next year 2023 there's also a link to that YouTube video I mentioned 
in the introduction, Gary Young destroys America's gun culture. It's really well put together, that video, and a very thorough and well-argued case for gun control. Also in today's description, you will find a link to Book Trust, the UK's largest children's reading charity. And they are hoping that you might be able to help with their hashtag just one book campaign. If you are in a position to make a donation of £10, it will enable Book Trust to send a special book parcel to a child who is vulnerable or in care across England, Wales and Northern Ireland this Christmas. This year, Book Trust are determined to reach 16,000 children. Half of the parcels will be sent to children in care and the other half will be given out through community food banks to children in families facing challenging circumstances. You'll find the link for Book Trust where you can make a donation at the top of the links in the description of this podcast. Okay, that's pretty much it for today. I'm going to get back, get this edited and uploaded and then carry on working on the Christmas podcast so I have it ready for you for Christmas morning. Thank you very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his production support and conversation editing on this episode. Thanks, Seamus. Much appreciated. Thanks also to Helen Green. She does the artwork for this podcast. Thank you, Helen. Thanks to Acast and all who work there for their continued support. But a special thank you goes out to you for downloading this and listening right to the end. A hug? Sure, everyone needs a flipping hug, don't they? Especially now. Come on. (laughs) Oh, and hey, I love you. Bye!